Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Michaela Watkins thought she was going to become an actor-actor, like a serious actor, Shakespeare and Ibsen and that kind of thing. She got an acting degree. She did regional theater. But it didn't turn out to be A Doll's House or King Lear that made her career. It was The Groundlings. She was almost 30 when she moved to L.A. and joined the comedy theater that changed the course of her life. And five or eight years later, when she got cast on Saturday Night Live, she thought she'd made it. Finally, in her late 30s, after 20 years in the game. Then, nine months after that, she was out on the street, fired after one season. But Michaela and her career have only kept growing. She started writing. She sold a pilot. She got parts. Then she got bigger parts. Prestige TV movie roles. Now, 25 years into her career, she's still finding new highs. This year, she's starring in three movies. Three. The latest of those is You Hurt My Feelings, which was written and directed by the great Nicole Holliff Center. Watkins stars alongside Julia Louis-Dreyfus. They play sisters. It's a movie about honesty, both its upsides and its downsides. Watkins' character, Sarah, is married to an actor named Mark a very worried actor who can't deal with people telling him what they really think of his work. And when Mark gets fired from a part, he's basically ready to quit forever. So Sarah knows that as his wife, a big gesture is in order. So she buys a gift that caters to her husband's greatest passion, one that speaks directly to his heart, a giant bag of socks. Honey... Mm -hmm. What is all this? <laughs> oh my God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Those are very special for wicking. Oh, I love wicking. These are, are going to keep you apparently very warm mm. if, if you are cold, hmm. but you won't get sweaty. And unlike these, which are specifically for if you like to sweat. And, and it's also vegan. Mm. So you can eat them. And then these are made from pork, but these uh, from eyelashes. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Watkins. <laughs> Welcome to Bullseye. It's, it's nice to see you. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I love this movie so much. You're so, you're so great and so funny in it both. Oh, thank you. That's as silly as the movie gets the eyelashes yeah. line. That scene was a little improvised. I think of the whole movie, that's like the only part where Nicole's like, just say whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, well, I've got something distressing to say. <laughs> Pork and eyelashes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, ma'am, you've hired a comedy writer to appear at this. I mean, you know, when you're talking about what socks are made out of, yeah, I guess. The most ideal sock would be a pork sock. Were it uh, uh, one of the wonderful, delightful comedies of 15 years ago? 
You could have just made a whole movie out of you listing specifics of things that the socks were made yeah, out of. Yeah, but yeah, no, there's not that attention span like there used to be. <laughs> <laughs> For movies that maybe have a little too much improvisation in them. <laughs> exactly. Maybe kind of like 30% too much, but they're great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is really wonderful to see you in this movie, and you're so great in it. And like, the movie is about... Uh, you know, trying to make things and about white lies that we tell ourselves and others. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you were forced to consider lies that you've told yourself. Well, let's start with lies that you've told yourself. Oh, my whole life is a lie. Like, think about the delusion and the things I had to tell myself to cut a path in in as an actor and choose that that was the way I was going to go with absolutely nothing to fall back on. What specifically is the lie that you had to, like, did you convince yourself you were good? I think, you know, it's like a tug of war between you've got something to say. You're, you're unique enough. You, you, you can do this, that thing that that person's doing, you can do that. That's very, that comes with ease for you with, um, (laughs) Why would anybody want to look at you or listen to you? Like those two things are always happening simultaneously. And then you get to a point where you just go, I I don't care. I don't care. You know, it's like maybe they don't want to look or listen to me, but somebody keeps hiring me. So that's on them, you know. But you were an actor, actor. Mm -hmm. So I was a very bad actor, actor. I think you were probably good. <laughs> um, I uh, One of the things about being an actor-actor mm-hmm. is that, especially when you're learning acting, mm-hmm. people are basically openly contemptuous of being funny. Like, yeah. they think that's bad. My My institution that I went to, the conservatory that I went to at Boston University, I didn't get any points for cracking a room up. I got points for walking and talking the way that a leading actress should. So there was no points for unique voice at all. And I, so that was such a fixed mindset for me that I was never going to be a real actor. And I, it took me years to get over that. Did you want to be a lead actress? Yeah. I wanted to, you know, I grew I grew up in Syracuse, New York. We didn't have nobody was shooting a film. It was in only Syracuse. supporting players. <laughs> <laughs> it's all character work. <laughs> like I, we didn't we didn't turn out a lot. Let's say we didn't turn out a lot of famous actors. But I always went to Syracuse stage. So my entryway into acting was to watch sort of classical theater, and that was what I thought acting was. And then, of course, movies and television. But I thought that's that's for people who grow up in Los Angeles. That's a that's a California thing. But here in the freezing Northeast, we go we do summer stock. We do, you know, um, like a Lord A or Lord B theater would you know doing regional theater would just be the dream. That's what I thought. I mean, that is a real job. Yeah, like, that's one of the neat things about it. It is, but what nobody ever tells you is that in classical theater which was mostly all that was happening in that kind of realm. It wasn't 
they weren't really dipping their toe into a lot of modern stuff so much. You know, they would have like a repertoire that was a lot of, like it always had a Shakespeare play, an August Wilson play, a one woman show and a like whatever contemporary play had just left Broadway and was kind of going around at that time, like closer or something, you know, you know what I'm saying? And uh, and then the fifth one would be like a Moliere, like some some other kind of classic, but not Shakespearean. And those plays, if you look at them, they're so inequitable because it was always 10 men and like two or three women. And my chances of getting into that lead pulpit position was slim, especially when I didn't look, talk, move, and, you know, stand like a leading lady. And there's so few where the women get to be funny. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's true-ish. I mean, yeah. It's very, yeah. Yeah. But you don't think you could, would you want to go do uh, Macbeth or something? I mean, yes, I would love to play Lady M. I think that would be great. I, I, you know, I'm not longing to, I'll be honest. I, I, you know, I did this reading one night. Well, it was like a staged reading where we all, had, you know, carried our scripts. But uh, it was to raise money for the Shakespeare Company here. And it was with Tom Hanks and Martin Short and um, Christina Applegate and Hamish Linkletter. Do you know who he is? Yeah. He, it. We did much ado. It rolled so effortly off his tongue that I just thought, I'm not doing Shakespeare unless it looks like that. It was like a Shakespeare massage where everything was crystal clear and it didn't feel like he was pushing in any way or trying or arch or trying to adjust his voice to make it sound like I'm an American person, like even as an American person doing Shakespeare, which is rare, (laughs) that it just felt like it lived in his tongue. And I know who his mother is because she's, you know, the prominent voice coach uh, for all theater, basically, Christina Lingletter. But he... He he's unbelievable, and I I just don't really want to do it unless I can be as like close to that kind of thing. But do you actually want that, or do you, or is it good that you figured out that you that that isn't what it takes? I want that. I want that. I'll tell you what I want. What I really really want is to uh, do a. <laughs> That was really funny. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just really want to um, do a period biopic, a period piece biopic where I have to completely fully immerse myself in dialect and time period and go all the way in on that. Do you want I do to... so much contemporary stuff, you know, and I just want to abandon my my sort of Syracuse flat A's, and I just really, really want to just grab by the you know shoulders something that's like someone who's so that I can emotionally and psychologically get into them, but whose entire life life existence is outside of my parameters. We've got so much more with the great Michaela Watkins. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. (music) 
Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, I am talking with Michaela Watkins. She's one of the stars of the new movie, You Hurt My Feelings, which was written and directed by Nicole Holofcener. Watkins and Julia Louis-Dreyfus play sisters in the film. It is in theaters now. It is hilarious. Okay, so we started with the lies that you told yourself, which was that you could do this. Yeah. Which is actually true because you have done it. Thank you. Yeah. It It's surreal. Like, I can't believe it. <laughs> the last time you were here was shortly after you had been fired from Saturday Night Live. Right. And, you know, you were already in your mid to late 30s when you were on Saturday Night Live. You were oh, like yeah. 36 or 37 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I turned 37 while I was there. So that could have been like it yeah and i mean it's an amazing achievement <laughs> it definitely I, I would say i was on my knees grateful that i got to acknowledge and check that box cuz it was a dream and i can i still can't believe that i'm one of few people that get to have lived that it was short lived but lived the fact that i don't in any way i feel like I identify myself as somebody who is, is, was on SNL is so fascinating to me because the fact that I don't feel like that's the most interesting part of my career is fascinating to me. But I am floored that I get to say that I was on it. It was really, I mean, there's, there will never be another call like that call. I don't imagine again. And I'm doing way more interesting stuff now, but there will never be that a phone call like that phone call ever again. The first person you told was Julia Louis-Dreyfus, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was shooting her show, New Adventures of Old Christine, and it was during a scene that I was not in, and I was running back and got my phone call, talked to Lauren, and walked out for the curtain call, and I was like hit by lightning. I was just dumbstruck and I was in shock and I walked onto the stage and she hugged me like, hey, and then looked at me like I saw a ghost. And I said, I just got SNL. And she was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't even remember this. I had a reminder. And and I was like, the first thing she says, we're going to get drinks. And I was like, I got to get on a 5 a.m. flight, but okay. By the time you get you got fired, did you have enough actor muscles to feel like not getting something or getting fired from something mm -hmm. isn't necessarily because you were bad? I will say that there was a nice sort of I mean, to be fired is one thing, to be so publicly fired on such a scale where it's like it was just my friend called and said hey you're trending on twitter and i just wanted to crawl under my bed i just thought wow i'm known right now for losing a job this is crazy there's like people who get fired from 200 million dollar movies where yeah. no one notices nobody notices yeah and so it was so I was embarrassed, you know, and I, I, I've said this before, but I felt like if people watched the show and thought I was funny, they would be like, oh, she must be an And if people didn't watch the show, 
they must have, they thought, oh, she must not have been very funny. And so I just, I just felt embarrassed. And I, I didn't think either of those were true. So I, I guess it was hugely growthful. I wish it didn't have to be so awfully painful, but it was very growthful and it was very humbling. I went back to Growlings and I took cla- a, t- a, a class in song improv, like <laughs> talk about fall from a ivory tower. It was just like back at my theater, taking a class in good old song improv, picking out, you know, clothes at Goodwill to wear for sketches again, you know. Did that feel good or did it feel like you were a, you know, a quarterback who got cut from the JUCO team and was back at high school wearing his Letterman jacket? Well, t- I, I'm proud of the Groundlings. I love the Groundlings. I don't think anybody's too good for the Groundlings, that's for sure. Um, I think the one line I wasn't willing to cross was I couldn't go back to waiting tables. Like that, that was where I thought, no, I, 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 just, I, I can't. That'll be, that'll crater me right now. Just because... There was so much celebration at my restaurant, you know, when I got this job and, you know, got to like quit. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't even really quit. At that point, I'd gone down to like one night a week because I was doing other jobs. I was doing, you know, like I said, I was on Old Christine. I was doing other jobs. I just liked the restaurant. I liked the people. <laughs> it was like a family, you know. But there was such a warmth when I left the show. Like there was such a, um, there was a nice outpouring of support from people who were like, oh, that's where, she, you know, and from people who worked at SNL, like uh, the the cast and writers were so warm. So I got a little cushion out the door, you know. Everybody was like, this is so weird. <laughs> but I mean, I don't think there's a lot of, like many people have been fired from Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. Um, the most famous job in comedy to get fired from. Yeah. But it seems so different to me to do that when you're not only a grown-up, mm-hmm. but also have an entire real chunk of career behind you. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you had 15 years as a professional actor mm-hmm. behind you before you were on Saturday Night as a professional and semi-professional yeah, actor. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, commercials, a lot of commercials. Violet, that counts. <laughs> yeah. That counts for sure. Yeah. But, you know, you weren't 22. Mm-hmm. And so nobody can be like, well, you've just started. You've just taken your first steps down the road. Who knows what the future will hold? Right. So you had to decide. You had to pick like, okay, but this actually means the good thing, which Mm -hmm. is that I got cast on this show and people thought I was funny there. Right. Not the bad thing, which is. Yeah, it's interesting. It was, it did make me feel like I got a little street cred for sure. You know, coming off that show, especially if people had watched it, you know, I that it was just the confusion. You know, I it was mass confusion because I didn't understand why they didn't want me back. You know, and, and I don't have to, and I never will. I can guess, but I don't know, and I don't really genuinely care anymore. I can't say I do. But was it going back to the Groundlings that made you feel like there was a path forward, or was it something else? Groundlings was where I went to sort of lick my wounds, you know, (laughs) with my favorite comedic people, collaborative, warm, family-like, got-your-back comedy people. Was there a day at the Groundlings when you were backstage at the Groundlings and somebody came in there like, the casting people from SNL are here tonight? Yeah, that did happen after I was 
let go from SNL. Yeah, um, Seth Meyers showed up. And I was like, oh, my God, because he was the head writer when I was there. And I just was like, this is so embarrassing. I don't, I don't, like, this just feels weird. It feels weird. That was such a, that's so funny that you bring that up because I had totally forgotten about that. I just felt so creepy and weird. And I felt like if I didn't have a good show, <laughs> that Seth would be like, yeah, see, we knew what we were doing. But Seth has always been so so nice, so supportive. What he's a great guy. I just adore that guy. Did you say hello to him? Oh yeah, I said hello. He's so nice, and that was the thing. He was just so nice, and it made me miss him even more. And yeah, it was just weird. It's all weird. So, what convinced you that there was something besides licking your wounds? So I got together with um, Damon Jones, who was another Groundlings member, and. He was kind of bummed out. I think he was going through a, a breakup or something. The two of us were these two sad sacks sitting backstage of a show. And he's like, do you want to write, try to write something? And I was like, I guess. I don't know. You want to throw me off a cliff? That's fun, too. And uh, we, sat, we started getting together and banged out this idea. He, we were both really interested in, <laughs> this is sounds so random, the broken justice system that is you know, our country's justice system. And that's what I imagine people are talking about backstage <laughs> at the Groundlings. Um, and so we we wanted to write a comedy about, you know, public defenders and just sort of highlighting how what a hellscape it is for for them. And uh, I have a sketch that would have been a good kickoff for a, a a pilot like that. So we incorporated that and then, you know, that gave us our lead character. It was it was, you know, something that I would ostensibly play, and then we sold it, and we sold it to ABC, and and then it ended up going for a whole season at USA, and John Embaum from Party Down was our showrunner, and we had all these great directors, and it only went one season as well, you know, but I didn't even know I could write, so it was, it was so buoying. And, and I had gotten, I was on a, a, a sitcom at that point called Trophy Wife that also went one season. Wow, I got a real, I, I was on a real roll there uh, of one season situations. And and then I broke the spell finally when I did casual. Well, it seems like one of the differences with writing something, mm -hmm. other than the fact that it was, you know, full-on gainful employment, mm -hmm. which you were looking for, yeah, is agency, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. When you feel like you have no power in this town, go write something for yourself. And that's what the Groundlings did give me in, in, in spades because we wrote so many sketches, so many sketches, that I knew how to write five-minute sketches. Why couldn't I write a 28-minute sketch, basically? And why can't I turn that sketch into a you know, arc, a whole arc of a story. So nothing could prepare me for this business like the Growlings did. I know I'm waxing so sweetly about them, but I don't think I ever worked as hard as I did there. I don't think I ever expanded my um, my uh, repertoire as much as when I was there. And, you know, you had to play straight people, silly people. You know, you wanted to get cast in other people's sketches, so you were constantly pivoting and you had to show you had to stretch yourself and stretch yourself and when you didn't think you could stretch yourself anymore 
you would just be sitting in your apartment and start talking in a voice that was a higher register. And then you would think, oh, is there something there? No, there's not. Or a lower register or, you know, um, or put on a mustache or whatever it is. And all of a sudden you start to find real people that are outrageous, but they're real. But you found a way to have control over your yeah. work in a way that mm-hmm. actors don't always get to have. Yeah. Again, I mean, I think if you can write for your, if you know your comedic voice and you can write to it, I didn't, I didn't get to play that part because I was on another show. So if you know your comedic voice and you can put it on paper and then you are totally in the driver's seat, even if it, even if nobody's buying it, even if when you're sitting with somebody else and you're drawing up a world and it's your world and nobody else can, you know, take it from you, that, that filled me up big time. It filled both of us. I feel like we both crawled out of a depression during that process. Are you critical of your own work or mm-hmm. do you think that it's good? I'm critical of my own work and sometimes I'm sometimes I think I something was good and I like sometimes I'll revisit something that I did a long time ago and I remember I watched it a long time ago with such a critical eye and I'll watch it later and go like I was good that was good that was like very imaginative I don't know that I would make that same choice right now I think I was really a creative person at that time. And I always look back and think, oh, but I don't, I didn't know then what I know now. So now I'm, I must be a better actor now. And I look back sometimes and I'm like, no, 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 you were, you were maybe in some ways better then. I don't know. What about looking at yourself? How do you feel about that? I don't have vanity over that. I just can't. I, you know, I just, life's too short. I get to be alive. I'm going to age. My teeth are crooked. My nose is wonky. That's fine. It's like me. That's me. And if you don't want that, if you want perfection, go get perfection. But if you want a real person, that's me. And I do not, I do not get hung up on my face and my stuff. I mean, sometimes, yeah. Okay. Sometimes, you know, as I age, right, my body changes and I'm like, oh, look at that. You know, I see age in myself, but I don't look at it with contempt. I look at it with just like, wow, okay. All right, here we go. Folks, it's the question on the tip of everyone's tongue. What does Michaela Watkins ask her pet psychic? Well, you won't have to wait long for the answer because we're bringing it to you after the break. Hard-hitting news on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Greatest Trek is the podcast for all your modern Star Trek needs. It's funny, informative, and now it's also timely. That's because every Friday, right after the release of a new episode of Strange New Worlds, Picard, Lower Decks, Discovery, or Prodigy, we bring you a review of that episode. There's some great new Star Trek coming up, and we're going to cover all of it. You'll like our show because we're both former video producers, so we bring a lot of insight into the production and filmmaking aspects to these episodes. And we also have a very refined sense of humor, so we make lots of delightful fart jokes along the way. So come see why Greatest Trek is one of the most popular television recap podcasts on all of the internet. Subscribe to Greatest Trek at MaximumFun.org or in the podcast app you're using right now. This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Michaela Watkins. She's starring in three new movies, You Hurt My Feelings, Paint, and The Young Wife. 
are you able to in the moment celebrate wins? Like, do you come off stage or get into your trailer and be like, yeah, I kicked butt on that one? I just talked to a pet psychic last weekend, and I'm going somewhere with this, which is, I don't know how we got off the dog so quickly because I really wanted to talk about my dogs. But she said, you know what? She was hilarious. She's like, you know, you're the kind of person that could, she didn't know what I do. She doesn't know what I look like. She doesn't know my name. She goes, you know, you're the kind of person who could win an award. And you might, you might win an award. You could, but you know what? 90 minutes later, you're going to be bummed out again. What? And I thought, she goes, well, you just find some reason why you don't deserve that award. And I thought, oh, that okay, That there might be some truth in that. Your pet psychic is a character from a 70s sitcom. <laughs> Swear to God. She's like Fran. Like a grumpy secretary <laughs> type. <laughs> I was going to say she's Fran Lebowitz is my pet psychic. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, Fran Lebowitz was a pet psychic? Wouldn't that I am be something? In. I know. How in would you be? I would be all the way in. Why did you go to a pet psychic? Oh, my dogs are um, (laughs) complicated. They're trying to make some tough decisions about their future and love lives. (laughs) Well, you know, one of them uh, hates men and dogs, and the other one hates women and children. So it's, you know, they're, they're an interesting bag of wax. And this is a psychic that is specifically a pet psychic or a psychic, well, a bro- broader psychic who does pet work? You know, I was hoping she would be specifically a pet psychic, as was advertised by my friend who convinced me to call her. Here's the thing about pet psychics. My first... The, Fool me once, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But this was my this was my second my second pet psychic, <laughs> and the first pet psychic, I got off the phone and I thought, wow, that was fascinating. Everything he said was perfect, and then I realized that every single thing he said could be pulled from my Instagram. So I I just thought either this person is incredible or they are just literally scrolling through my Instagram. The second person just wanted to talk about me and how I, I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Was like, you know, dogs are a mirror of you. What are you so stressed about? And I was like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm I'm working on it. I'm working on stress. I don't think of myself super stressed. I know I always play high strung people, but that's because it's fun. So I, before we went on, I mentioned to you that mm-hmm. our booker, Mara Davis, had pitched you as a guest on this show. Mm-hmm. I was thrilled. Looking for an opportunity to talk to you again. <laughs> Thank you. But uh, Mara pitched you, mm-hmm. and she said, I think, uh, I think that Michaela Watkins is having a real moment. <laughs> and I'm not, that sounded like I was making fun of Mara. Mara's great. But... Oh. Um, <laughs> sounds great to me but it must be neat to have a real moment like you've earned it you've had other plenty of moments you've had a claim but like here you are in multiple movies you Mm -hmm. got to be really the co-lead alongside Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Nicole Holofcener movie which is about (laughs) as good as it gets in show business you know what I mean it's I can't complain I'm lucky I'm so lucky I can't believe it I told you, I can't believe it. Um, I, 
I know that I'm somebody who has to kind of hit every rung of the ladder, but I'm, it's been, it's a nice journey, you know, it really is. And it feels like, it feels like it's blooming in exactly a way that is the right tempo for me. Um, you know, I, I was, I think I could be too overwhelmed if, if, um, I don't know. I think now I'm ready to do the next Mission Impossible movie. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that you're ready to... Um, so Jeannie Berlin is in the movie. Yeah. She plays your mom. That's right. And she's a level of hilarious in this movie. Yeah. It's also a wonderful actor. I know. Wonderful actor and so similar to my mother. Really? Yeah. In this movie. So this is the question I was going to ask you. Mm-hmm. Jeannie Berlin's out here in her 70s just destroying, just laying waste to this movie. Mm-hmm. She's so fantastic. So great. Like, you're doing great at middle age, but are you ready to be an old lady actor? Oh, yeah. I've been ready to be that since I was since I was eight. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I just feel like you're going to be really good at it. Thank you. I wonder if I'm going to be, if I'm going to seem like a young, spry 80-year-old because I've been an 80-year-old my whole life. I mean, Edie Patterson, do you know who she is? Sure. Incre- incredible actress and comedian. And she so always, funny. so funny. And she always said to me, she she used to describe me in my, in my early 30s. She'd say, Michaela is a, a 75-year-old in a hot girl's body. <laughs> I was always like, that is the nicest compliment. Because I, I, that is where I, that's my happy place, is like, is like older lady humor, old lady humor. That is just, I read scripts sometimes and I'm like, can I play the 85-year-old? Because that's an awesome part. Yeah. Ready to like talk mass, point at people. Not give up. Yeah, that'll be great. That'll be great. I'm ready for my walk around with my hands behind my back, like clasp behind my back while oh, yeah. I look at things. Yeah. That's my main thing that I'm excited about. Yeah. Um, my husband walks like that sometimes, always has. And um, I hated it. I was like, he's a great guy. I just hate his walk. <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized, like, that's a guy. Who's happy? Like, he's a happy guy. He's he's totally great with himself. He doesn't wish he was anywhere but where he is right now. And then I just realized, like, that was what I was talking about when I say I had to work on myself, is I had to stop projecting into the future and the past. You know, I just, like, look at this guy. He's just so present, and he made me so present. And, and it, I just really appreciated him. It didn't matter how he walked. It's just he was a happy guy. Well, Michaela Watkins, I'm so grateful to you for coming back and being here. And uh, the movie's so great, and you're wonderful in it. Thank you so much. Michaela Watkins, always a delight. Love her so much. Catch her in the new film, You Hurt My Feelings. Uh, It is a classic Nicole Holof Center joint. Funny, sharp, insightful in theaters now. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. I made it up to the Southern Sierras this past weekend. Um, And uh, hey, it's been rough up there. 
climate change is real, folks. Uh, some catastrophic snowstorms and some catastrophic fires. Uh, but people up there in Tulare County are hanging in there. So uh, shout out to Sequoia Crest and um, all of the Southern Sierras. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fund is Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is composed and provided to us by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation, thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us in those places and follow us. Please share our interviews. Tell a friend, please. If you thought something was great on this show, send it to your uncle. Put it on your Tumblr. Got an anime Tumblr? Put it on there. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.